welcome to Movie Mumble, episode, uh, I don't remember. 19? <laughs> 19, I, I think. Is it? Or 18. It's 18. 18, yes. Yeah, multiples of three. three. Yeah. Episode 18. Wow, we've made it pretty far. Uh, our podcast is an adult. <laughs> <laughs> Barely legal. <laughs> oh, man. We'll make this joke again in uh, 17 years, but we've been doing it for 18 real years. <laughs> we've, we've done the podcast so much, we've run out of the counting ability to count that high. Yeah. So, uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Uh, movie Mumble, for those of you who don't know, is a monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where the three of us take turns picking movies, watching them, and then talking about them in an attempt to uh, broaden our cinematic horizons and learn new things and just have movie-related fun. <laughs> there are no rules about what films we can pick. They can be foreign or domestic, live-action or animated, new or old, uh, something we've seen or never seen. It's it's all whatever. Uh, we, we just like sharing movies with each other. We believe that sharing them with good friends enriches the experience and gets us more out of the film than we would get on our own. My name is Scott Murray and I'm your host and I am joined as always by my, uh, I, I don't know, I want to make a joke about life and death, but I, I, hallu- are we all hallucinating? I'm joined <laughs> in this collective hallucination by my good friends Joel Lewis Howdy. and Tim Gerard. Hello. Um, I, I ran out of movie-related jokes several episodes ago. This <laughs> is evident by this podcast. But there you go. <laughs> Uh, this is the conclusion of a cycle, which means that it is uh, was Tim's turn to decide, since we pick in the order of Joel, Scott, and Tim. And Tim, you brought us La Fountain. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. Boy, howdy. Oh, man. Darren Aronofsky film. Much like your first pick, Pi, mm-hmm. is also an Aronofsky film. Yep. Starting yeah. a trend. Yeah. <laughs> Was it Pi or was it Queen of Scotsy? I think oh, your first pick no, was Queen of Scotsy. right. Scotsy. First yeah. was Queen Gosh, I remember nothing about this podcast. <laughs> That's right. Resident <laughs> historian of the movie. <laughs> who man, who gets podcast. my job now? <laughs> I feel like I no longer host, apparently. So, uh, so we'll get into uh, the film and why Tim picked it and all that jazz in a moment. But as is tradition, we have Joel's glorious silver dollar coin. Uh, Tim, the movie selector, is going to flip that coin. Joel, who's next in line, is going to call it in the air. And then the winner of that coin toss determines who uh, gets to, or who has to, uh, <laughs> describe the film. So, uh, gentlemen, whenever you're ready. Tails. It's Tails. All right, Joel. That, you're up, Scott. <laughs> hey, I'm actually kind of glad about that. The Fountain is a, a beautiful, gorgeous, esoteric, imaginative, and, and sort of dreamy journey of an exploration of I guess of, of acceptance of death and its natural relation to life. Um, on its surface Hugh Jackman plays a very gifted medical professional, a uh, surgeon I guess. Of, Brain surgeon, um, yeah. And his wife is dying of, of a cancer not unlike that which he's working on with animals in the lab. And so the big back and forth is between her sort of acceptance of death and wish to just sort of spend her time with him and lift things out and his, his inability to cope his with inability it. to cope with that and his relentless just utter unstoppable drive to spend every waking moment in his lab working towards a cure and a solution mm-hmm. um, but at the same time we get a couple of other stories a story of of a, a man in a with a tree of life traveling through space or some other realm 
also played by Hugh Jackman, and the story of a Spanish conquistador in South America at a, a Mayan temple, also played by Hugh Jackman. <laughs> uh, I see some parallels here. Um, and, and so that's our journey. It all, it's, some parts of it start at the end and others start at the beginning, and it, it sounds kind of complicated to explain, but it's told really well, and it all is laid out very smoothly and blends together very finely at the end. Um, the type of film that you might be confused at the end, not because you won't know what happened. You know, you'll know the events, you'll know what happened to each character, you know where they ended up, but because you won't necessarily know what you're supposed to make of it or what it all means, <laughs> which I think is kind of the point. Yeah. Um, once you ask questions, so another textbook example of why this this uh, podcast exists, actually, Tim, because <laughs> if, if anyone who tries to describe this is going to end up with kind of a mess of a description. Right. And the listener is just going to go, oh, okay, sure. I never want to see that. Sounds neat. <laughs> They're going to just promptly forget about it. Right. <laughs> but, you know, just sitting down and watching it was a beautiful journey. <laughs> it's another one. We've, we've had several films in these last few cycles where credits roll and we're just in stunned silence. Yeah. And this was, I didn't want to be the guy who says, oh, shit. But it had gone <laughs> a long time. I'm usually the guy who says, well, shit, at the end of it. Like, mm -hmm. this... This was the longest pause before I said that, just because it, it felt like it needed to let it breathe. It, mm -hmm. it just was so impactful. And now we're letting it breathe again, here yeah. as we all contemplate <laughs> the film. So Tim, why don't you talk to us about The Fountain, why you picked it, your, your history with it, all that sort of thing. <clears throat> okay. give, us, give us the foundation upon which to build our... Fountain. Yes. <laughs> you were well, going for something else. I was going to say something else, but I, yes. <laughs> foundation. <laughs> I liked that one. You can boo all you want. No, I liked it in a certain way, which is why I booed. I hate that I liked it. <laughs> um, well, I can't talk about almost any, the origin of any film with me without talking about Blockbuster. Woo! Hey. So... So back in my blockbuster days when, was when I became aware of Darren Aronofsky through, and I think at the time was when Requiem for a Dream had come out. And I think I've talked before about sort of the parallel with like Darren Aronofsky and Jonathan, uh, Christopher Nolan. Um, and it was also around the same time that Memento had come out. And then sort of being the good little film doobie that I was at the time, I said, oh, this is his second film? I need to go back and watch his first one. So that's when I found out about Pi. And then... Um, you know, it was just kind of like, oh man, this, these are amazing. He needs to make more films. So then eventually it was, oh, Darren Aronofsky made another film. All right. You know, and that's the thing is like, I don't know if I had, if I hadn't known about him as a director, I don't know that I necessarily would have sought this film out. I mean, maybe because Hugh Jackman was in it and he had just been in X-Men and it was like, okay, like the comic book nerd in me is like, oh, I love this actor. I want to see him in something else. Um, and, uh, and it was actually funny. I, I mentioned a little bit about this that, uh, the um, it was actually my first date with my my ex my my last girlfriend before I moved out here from Rhode Island. Um, like I'd asked her to go see it, and you know it was funny. Like I told Scott about this, I was like, "Oh God, this was a first date," and like it was it was really weird. Like I was in a weird place in my life, and like our relationship was really weird. So it was a very appropriate movie for us to see <laughs> as a first date. Um, mm -hmm. And I just um, just that if a, if a first date's job is to facilitate conversation and introduction, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. to just immediately dive into something like this, yeah. was... So we're gonna die, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, and, and I'm not yeah. gonna be able to cope. Well, and not only that, but like also just 
you know, if, if she had sort of come come out of that being like, oh, that was stupid, it's just like, okay, good, I never have to go on another date right. with you again. You know? It was a good game. Um, yeah. And, and it was funny, too, because there was, um, around the time that it came out, I remember a lot of people thought it was about time travel. Because they had seen, like, Hugh Jackman playing three different characters in three different time periods. Right. Uh. And I remember, like, I was teaching at a, a, a music studio at the time, and there were these... Uh, two brothers who were teachers there and I think they had gone to see it with their dad at the same showing as me they were like sitting in front of me and I saw them there and they're like after the movies I was like oh my god it was so stupid I hate it I thought I was coming to see another back to the future and instead it was you know so it was just kind of like wow that was kind of weird like you know how I don't know how that perspective got sort of put out there Mm -hmm. Um, my first thought at the beginning of the film while watching it was potential for time travel Mm -hmm. or for like the whole one man lives many lives across the centuries. Right. But then that got dashed within like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. See, that's so, the thing. Uh, I was thinking like a Cloud Atlas type yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Right. It's so right. interesting to see how many movies were influenced by or this took cues from. Because mm-hmm. it's a little bit Indiana Jones, it's a little bit mm-hmm. Cloud Atlas. It's a, like, it, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, it was it was and, and that was sort of the thing is like cough it, cough the tree of life cough yeah, cough yeah <laughs> Matt Damon yeah like the film called tree of life oh. isn't um, that Brad Pitt oh maybe one of them one of the blonde ones I can remember a lot <laughs> of the I can remember ones. a lot of sunlight shining through leaves and one of, and some actor in it you know <laughs> but but. Yeah. but but so yeah so that was sort of my introduction to it and then of course like you know once it came out I bought it and. Um, it's interesting too because like I know I've also talked about sort of the the whole of Aronofsky's works before and how um, you know my my I think we talked la- at the end of last podcast like sort of how this is sort of the middle one where I felt like he hit a peak and then his next sort of really big peak was Mother which is you know the one I'm going to bring next year to watch <laughs> um, but like how and, and it's cool because you start to see some of the themes, like some of the biblical themes, show up in this one, yeah. and just overall like mythology and, and metaphor and and storytelling within the storytelling of the film, you know, is mm-hmm. is a part of it. Um, whereas the first two kind of didn't didn't really have that. I mean, you know, there were other things that were really cool and other metaphor that happened, but this was the first one I think that introduced like you know the sort of Bible aspect, you know, with the tree of life and the, and the you know tree of knowledge of good and evil, and like the part where she says, you know, you know, I'll be your Eve and this sort of stuff. So so you get the little inklings of that, and then you know he did Noah, which I still I still have to watch Noah a second time. Yeah, I still don't know exactly how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was definitely like surprised. It was, like, after the first time I saw it, it was definitely one of those, huh? Okay. That was a thing. Like, yeah, like, like it wasn't. You know, obviously this one, it's like, there's, there's no if ands or buts. I mean, you know, either you hate it or you love it. You know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Whereas with Noah, I was like, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. Um, and that was his first kind of obvious foray into a biblical thing. Um, I think with Pi, there's definitely the ink- talking about like the the divine sequence of numbers and that mm-hmm. kind of, like I think it, he's always dealing that's with, true yeah yeah it's kind There's, of a mechanized way yeah. of explaining yeah or exploring the idea of creation and how God is a thing in the world I think because I'm watching this is like I've seen a lot of pie analogs and mm. maybe it's just that's what I was picking out of yeah. it but no that's true yeah like I don't know if I was thinking of it because it was so like mechanized it's yeah. all about yeah. the it's all about the math of it yeah the, so the, whereas this was more about the a little more about the metaphor and the, right. the the spiritual part of it 
as opposed to yeah did you also notice too that the the priest was max's math teacher from pi oh shit. the one who brought them the dagger that's right he's also the landlord in ace ventura pet detective oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also in breaking bad yes, he's a guy he's, in a wheelchair yeah yeah, yeah. Ding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Spoilers for Breaking Bad. (laughs) What does ding, ding, boom mean? Man, how old is that show now? Let's not delve into that. It feels sad. (laughs) Right, yeah. We've got enough sad material with this movie. Yeah. So anyway, that that kind of brings us up to date for for me. Um, uh, I think I've only seen it a few more times. It's one of those... I think, Scott, you've talked about some of your favorites like this where watching it is more of an event you know you'll yeah. kind of reserve it and like purposely hold back i feel like this is kind of like that with me um also because it is so heavy you know it's definitely not something you, you want to pop in on a saturday morning you right know? like which is what we favorite, just did yeah i haven't just like i've only watched it like four times because yeah. you have to sit down and watch it all through you can't mm-hmm. just toss it on and yeah. go and you have to be ready and, for the and, emotional journey of it. yeah right. for sure like i can toss lord of the rings on right that's great I, yeah yeah absolutely but i can toss on mystery train Okay, yeah. Actually, despite that being really up there. But mm-hmm. I can't exactly just sort of throw on, you know, Alien or right. Drive. See, I, I, I wait on Fugitive so I can forget all the little details of mm-hmm. it. And I forget how good it is. And then I'm nervous watching it again. It's like, is it going to hold up? Is it going to hold up? <laughs> and it does it because totally it's does. awesome. Oh, <laughs> oh, man. This is a fucking journey. Like, so, what a movie. But but <laughs> so well, one thing I would ask. I mean, if yeah. you're about to launch in on no, a no, conversation, ahead, we yeah, can yeah. hold off on no, this. No, but I I'm interested. I want to know what each of your favorite scenes was because I have a favorite scene in mind, and it's just like I I want to talk about it. But I want I, I want you guys to do yours first. Or like I said, if you were about to go into something else, do that first. We no, I like I like oh, this yeah, question this is, as this is a good gateway. Discussion. I every every sequence where he's going through the nebula in the orb, it's mm-hmm. just so breathtaking. And it, 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 it's like, I was telling, I didn't want to check my phone, I didn't want to write, no- I feel like I should have done notes, but I'm glad I didn't, because I knew with Aronofsky you don't want to blink, because everything mm-hmm, yeah. is in the frame, and for that CGI to be so beautiful and well executed and doesn't feel dated from a movie from 2006, right. like, all those sequences were just gorgeous, just... But I, I also really like the the conquistador frame story. Yeah. Because it's very Indiana Jones. It's mm-hmm. very like. Okay, we puts the dagger in the thing on the ground and it points the way out. I was like, oh yeah, god. I want to talk about that <laughs> later. About well, yeah. well, I get we can get into it. There's a few moments in it that f- f- kind of pulled me out of it, but then the framing of it made it okay for the movie because mm-hmm. that seemed like really contrived. I was like, okay, this is like a silly way like he discovered it just by chance how would chance. they not have seen it over right. there in the distance but the other yeah. thing is that that's the story written by Izzy right so it feels written because it is written yeah and also Scott we were t- talking about Izzy not feeling the cold on her feet mm-hmm. and we were like well that's kind of weird why it's because the tumor has made her lose sensation and it, mm-hmm. it's explained so mm-hmm. even like the, the little niggling doubts I would have had are the things that I was like I don't really like those Im- elements were explained within two frames later so mm-hmm. it was like that was really cool yeah yeah but like any of the stuff where he's in the orb going through the nebula mm-hmm. is just like i wanted just to like it, it was like the old like um 
screensavers that are like mesmerizing with yeah, the smoke yeah. and stuff, mm-hmm. but like not as cheap as that, but right. just like really, <laughs> yeah, it, really spectacular and really like really not was what I was expecting from this, and it was just such an interesting having seen Pi most recently and kind of the only Aronofsky I had seen that's kind of Quay Aronofsky because I, I had seen Noah, but it's not really in this vein really. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like, it only took him three movies to get to this place, to this visual storytelling is just incredible. And just kind of the strangeness of Hugh Jackman with the the tattoos and like, I really liked that setting. Uh, maybe maybe that's cheating instead of it being a single scene. It's like that whole... <laughs> a third of the movie. A is third of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, Scott, do you have one? In the throne room scene. I was thinking about it. Oh yeah. yes, I, um, it's so gorgeous. Partly because of the architecture. Yeah, and the mm-hmm. whole suspended candle. Yeah, light. just in general, and it's definitely of the film, but it definitely also there was a really obvious like someone went to Spain and looked at the castles that Isabella lived right. in, and then started from there and ended up with the set. And it's you know not historically perfect, but but like it was clearly there. That was clearly where they'd begun, mm-hmm. which was super nice. I love that little little attention to, you know, the real setting. And then also just that I guess I like that most because it's the most on the nose about the um despite it not being the end of the film, that's where we get the most revelation, really. Mm-hmm. The most everything brought together into one revelation. Because throughout the film I noticed I, Izzy's always dressed in white and Hugh's always dressed in black mm-hmm. he's dressed in black when he's a normal person he's dressed in all black as the conquistador the only um, he's the only time he isn't is obviously when he's in his surgery gear and then he's in like a slate gray when he's in tree world right which turns out to be a clue to something but um that whole throne room scene was just I guess the most on the nose with there was all this great lighting, but none of it fell on him. You know, he was it was always to his back, and his face was always shrouded, and gotcha. it all came onto Isabel's face instead. And That's when he looked right. up at her, she was a glow right. with the light from the doorway, and she's standing in that back alcove, which is all well lit, like a normal room. But he's out in the shadowy columns, mm-hmm. just stepped forward enough for the light to show him to her, so she can communicate. It's great with that screen door, that like flowery, mm-hmm. like distance aesthetic distance mm-hmm. I, that was another thing that was kind of like would have irritated me if I didn't know it was the written part of it where mm-hmm. she's literally in a tree dress mm-hmm. like it, it's a little like okay here it is in your face like but like because it was is it's about, like if it was like, a play right. that's what she would be dressed in yeah yeah right. no, exactly it, no that was great that's yeah. a great scene such a cool location for that I don't know how they pulled yeah. that off with it making... It's got to be mirrors on mirrors or something, like the idea of those... Because mm. it looks like those candles go on and on and on, and it's like suspended in space. It's mm-hmm. so gorgeous. Yeah, they look like stars. Yeah, yeah they do. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's, there's the tree and the pool of light in the middle of the sea of stars. Yeah. All right, Tim. It's time. And the tree dress. So so I don't know if, if, if climax is the right word for this scene but to to me it it definitely feels but like you climaxed the, during the right scene. yeah the like like the culmination like the the sort of um so like the scene after izzy dies and he's sitting on the bed with the book 
and he drops it and he's holding her hat and just like smashes it into the night table all of a sudden and spills the ink and looks at his where his wedding ring used to be he, and yeah, picks up the pen he lost and just starts of the film and tattooing a wedding ring into his finger and Hugh Jackman is just fucking bawling and it's just like oh my god yeah. like like it's when like he is broken and it's the it's sort of the the end of him trying to save her but also the beginning of oh this is how he becomes that guy in the sphere with the mm-hmm. tattoos all up his arm so like those points coming together and you know just like the, where she she kind of stops being a person and becomes the myth you know mm-hmm. becomes the character because you know she's not there as a real person anymore so it's just this okay i'm gonna you know i'm gonna plant the tree and i'm gonna make her body in the tree and we're gonna go to the nebula and you know and then kind of him going on the quest for you know like you were saying like the when they show her as the the queen like her you know she's this beacon of light in this mm-hmm. thing you know and it's like it just like how through all the all the the metaphor and the storytelling like it's the 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 moment that's the kind of like the most real like where he finally has to face the grief you know he's been in denial this whole time like i'm gonna save you i'm gonna i mean we still see that later he's like death is a disease we're gonna find the cure but like this is the the point where he i mean even when she first dies he's like still trying to bring her back you know and and this is when it all just comes crashing in on him like she is gone like that is it and it's almost like where you know there's almost like a, a like a mental break where it's just like and that's the you know it's after that that he realizes, yeah, death is a disease. Mm-hmm. We're going to cure it. And, and you know, he hasn't written that last chapter yet, you know, so it's kind of he's still, you know, okay, we're, I'm not going to write an ending because this isn't the end. There's a way to save her, you know. And, and it's just like, oh, my God, there's just, like, so much in that moment that, yeah, like I said, just comes crashing in. And just, like, how much they just let him cry and, like, wail in that yes. scene. Just like, great on screen cry, too. <laughs> oh my like, God. like, and it... There's some people who I cannot believe are crying. Like, uh, this is going to be a whole Spider-Man thing. But <laughs> I think Andrew Garfield's cry at Uncle Ben dying, that Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben bullshit, I, yeah. it's unwatchable. Uh-huh. Also, Tobey Maguire's cry with that quivering lip thing is just, it doesn't, mm. it's not That was not the one real. that first came to mind when you yeah. said Spider-Man. <laughs> well, I like how that, that's become a meme, too. It's just yeah. like... <laughs> but that said, I, I think Gar- Garfield's... Uh, non-crying grief at, at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2 was actually really well well done because yeah, it's that not one's better. it's less physical I could say just that which yeah. was more suited to him you know yeah um, but, but like I, Jackman's yeah. an incredible actor that's so much emotion when he's talking about um, when the the head doctor or whoever the, the um, like the administrator comes to see him mm-hmm. and it's like don't you know why I'm here? Like by the time if we if I wait for confirmation, she'll already be and his right. voice breaks and it's just so heartrending. Like yeah. he he's so good at conveying that emotion in so mm-hmm. few lines, and he's like, I'm here because I have to try and do something because I there's a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm so damn close. Mm-hmm. It's so heartbreaking that yeah. it's gone. It, that was the cure, and he just uh, it it's he's so focused on it that they found the fountain of youth. They found the cure to growing old. Yeah. He's like, fuck that. That's not the point. We need to do this other thing. Right. Put that in a box somewhere else and we'll, we'll work, we're working on tumors. Yeah. Like, yeah. just... We'll worry about everyone else later. But I... You're right, Tim. That's a phenomenal scene. It, it and really it's, is. It's, it's so well constructed, not just in the short term with 
you know, oh, we saw the ink on this his hand before, and the oh, I... no, but it's so it's constructed throughout the entire film because every, even the scene you talked about there, Joel, when his voice cracks, or a couple mm-hmm. other scenes where he, he sort of cries, he does that wheezing thing that, <laughs> yeah, like, but he doesn't, he doesn't quite actually cry, mm-hmm. ever, Until and so when he second. finally does, it just. It's all of it. It's yeah. been building for the whole film. And not heavy handedly, not smack others in the face with it, you know. Right. It wasn't it wasn't it was a really subtle Chekhov's gun that you didn't notice, if right. to put it that way. You know, that instead of, you know unlike Lahane, where the gun is all over the film. Right. <laughs> and they're waving <laughs> it around and you're happen? waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Here it was just it was there the whole time, but it's almost easy to miss. Right. Because then when he finally weeps, you think it's it's different, you know, and you think, well, I thought I saw him cry before, but I guess I didn't right. because mm-hmm. this is, oh, you know, and it just hits, and then that they give it give him the time, yeah, to just they start the camera, there's the room, there's him on the bed, and they just gave us forty seconds of that, of just nothing else, and that frustrated like him break and he breaks that lamp like that thing's in pieces. I was, after that break, I was like damn it is Wolverine like but it's also like it's the last gasp of trying to affect the world physically like I can't do anything so let me break something like yeah. it, it just it's so good it reminds something um, when uh, she's taking a bath and they're trying to get sensation back and she notices that his ring's off and she kind of chides him about is it a redhead? Mm-hmm. Have you already moved on? Yeah. And it's it's this it doesn't come from a cruel place because she's thought about it. There's a whole yeah. movie that's predicated on this, and I can't remember what it's called. Tyne and I had watched it. I know it's, what you're thinking about. It's on I can picture it, but I can't. Yeah, the idea that there, there's a, a cancer patient who knows that she's going to die, and they're going to therapy as a couple and kind of trying to figure out next plans, like mm-hmm. what, how to move on no, and that kind of thing. that's not what I'm thing. thinking of. Oh, well. I was thinking of a movie with... They were a little older. I guess the character's supposed to be upper 40s or 50-ish, mm-hmm. and it's... But the, the the dying spouse spends time trying to set up the other spouse on dates. That's that's what it is. Oh, okay. It's the same I'm, one. Did I mix up the age or something? I, anyway, um, but it's funny because she, for her, it's kind of a joke. Partly because she's she knows she's dead already, and anything is a joke. Oh, mm-hmm. it's fine. Right. Nothing has lasting consequences. And partly because, like she just she wants to tease him about it and mm-hmm. it's just funny and she enjoys it but for him the very idea of well the idea of being with anyone else is insanity right but also the very idea of her not being around yeah. is no like he can't even finish the sentence right so she you know laughs oh how's it right head and he says Austin in surgery which is true we saw it happen and and she goes oh you know sure you did and then he just he can't he can't have the conversation anymore and he just shuts down and like turns away to leave and she has to stop him and like no come back like I need right. I have something to actually talk to you about I'm moving sensation please come help me like right. because she realizes she sort of she did too much there right but and it I, wasn't I can't find that movie I'm, I'll yeah. have to find it but just that little playfulness about like I know I'm gonna be gone and you're gonna be alone and you I want you to be happy to have a life this. and yeah. that's the idea like he Respond so negatively and so violently to even the thought of her not existing anymore. Every single time we see it, anytime she, rep- I want you to finish it. 
because I can't. No. I'm going to be gone. He, says no. he just, he, why are you doing this? Like, it's almost like he's resentful of like, you're dying. Why are you dying? Why are mm-hmm. you dying to me? Like, yeah. Yeah. your dying is an act that's going to hurt me. It's just so well captured in that and so frustrating and so heartbreaking. I also like the, the polarity between like science and I guess faith not necessarily religion because right. she's not a religious person we gather like she's kind of looking into these older myths but or you know or like the some sort of spiritual end of things you know like when she's like especially in that one scene where she has her seizure and she's like oh I felt like I was I was being held and he was like yeah I caught you I held you like like that was me and she's like no like I feel different on the inside you know like you know again and she's kind of preparing for this transition He's kind of like, no, He's like come back to me in my science. Yeah. Like, I will fix you, you know? And, mm. and kind of seeing those two things back and forth is really, really cool. The dramatic reveal that they're testing on animals rather than a human was really well done. I thought yeah. that was interesting. Towards the beginning. There's, yeah, they talk yeah. about, um, what's the name, Donovan? Donovan's on the table. He's ready to go. And they have all the scans, and they're clearly a brain. And they talk about... He's open. Like, should we close him up? Tumor's growing too fast. If we close him up, we'll die before we can operate again. And, right. uh, and they call him Donovan the whole time. And then the camera pans up, and it's a monkey. You can see his paw. Like, that, I think that was really... I think Aronofsky does that. Like, he'll put potential plot holes on screen, and then he <laughs> fixes them before yeah. you have, like, time to be frustrated by mm-hmm. it. That, that yeah. I thought, yeah. was really interesting. It's like, how are they able to test this on a human yeah. just... Just as an experiment, and then it's yeah. Like, he runs off. It's Remember that tree? Like, Grab it. <laughs> like, yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. That was really good. This is another movie that really reminded me of Terry Gilliam's stuff, and I I think Aronofsky must be a Gilliam fan, because even in this is something in Pi, you kind of feel the grime on the walls and how derelict his apartment is, and I kind of got that sense when you see him in the hallway when he first goes home. Mm-hmm. to see uh, Izzy and he's searching through the place like there's it's a very well appointed and like it's a doctor's apartment it's expensive mm-hmm. you can see but in that hallway shot there's like it seems aged and it seems grimy in a certain sense like this is a yeah. room he's not in and maybe it's it's the sign of like Izzy's bedridden and like not having been able to move around or yeah. like like no one's taking care of the house right yeah. so there's that that element to it which was really interesting and the idea that in Pi, it's an exploration of, like, God through science. And then this is God through myth. myth, And that's another thing Gilliam does is Gilliam just makes the same movie 16 times in a row and does, like, slightly... Not not to the detriment of it, but you can definitely see that, okay, this Zero Theorem is very much Brazil, but not as good. And Brazil is, like, this, this uh, testament to what Terry Gilliam's trying, but he hasn't quite gotten it. He's trying to, like, re vitalize it through his work past that so it just mm-hmm. interesting parallels between those two directors eventually I'll bring Brazil to the podcast but I'd like I really would like to see them juxtapose because I think they explore similar themes and similar aesthetics on screen uh, but what's something newer that he's done because I know I know that name I can't Imaginarium remember. of Dr. Parnassus okay was a his, his newest nine. one was Zero Theorem he's doing um Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which hasn't come out quite yet. He's he's a member of Monty Python. He did. Okay. He directed. Um, yeah, the Zero Theorem. 
He co-directed uh, Holy Grail with yeah. Terry Jones. So yeah, Zero Theorem and then Imaginary Emulator like Parnassus if you want feature length. There are a couple of shorts in there. But uh, The Brothers Grimm. Okay. Oh, Tideland. Fear and Loathing. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. All right. And that, I always one, forget anyway. that one. But I, for some reason, I don't associate that with him. It doesn't feel like him. But then the one I do, 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys oh, okay. is all him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right underneath it. There you go. Yeah. So. That's a really and interesting. Brazil, of course. Like the... the Commentaries and the the documentaries about the filming of that with Bruce Willis, with this really kind of madcap zany control freak Terry Gilliam director and them butting heads and like not liking working with each other. That's it was. You need like a night an evening with Kevin Smith version of Terry Gilliam's experience with <laughs> Bruce Willis. <laughs> I remember seeing a scene from behind the scenes stuff where, like, what is it like? Uh, when Bruce Willis has like the the woman in the trunk of a car, yeah, and like when he opens it and she like kicks him or something and he crumbles, oh, yeah. and him being like, I don't care how blah blah blah, I would not go down if she hit me, you know, and he was just like refusing that right. there's no way this is happening, like there's no way she can take me down. I don't care how tired I am, how weak I am, I'm not going down. It was just like Jesus, dude, like <laughs> <laughs> notoriously difficult to work with Bruce Willis. <laughs> Who's your second to play John McClane? Click. <laughs> but seriously, for him to go from pie to this, at least just in a visual sense, because you get you understand his pioneering film techniques in pie. You see them there. In this, it's just a whole nother level, and it's so different from even Requiem, because Requiem doesn't have a whole lot of. I mean, I, I haven't seen it, but is, is is there, like, hallucinatory imagery, or is there... I don't think... Well, the the, um, the Ellen Burstyn's character does, because um, she's on, like, the, with, like, diet drugs, and she has a ton of hallucinations, where, like, there's this game show she wants to be on. She, like, hallucinates, like, the, the host of the show, like, showing up in her apartment <laughs> and everything, which... Um, actually, that was something I thought of when she asked, like, oh, is it a redhead? How Ellen Burstyn's character was, a, well, you know, she's still an older woman, but she had, like, reddish hair in Requiem. So I wonder gotcha. if that was, like, a little shout-out to her being wow. in that Google's movie. description of the fountain does involve time travel. What? Yeah, sort of. It, or at least three lives across different ages, at minimum. Huh. It'd be interesting to see the trailer, too, because they had it yeah. as a DVD option. Because yeah. this... See how it was marketed probably affected that. Yeah. It's like all right. I just I was trying to get to Wikipedia to check the budget because I yeah because there's so yeah. much on screen and it doesn't look like a penny was wasted. Yeah, but it doesn't it. So like Pi felt low budget, and not like oh cheap or done tra- crappily. Just, right, you know, it just it, was done for a little bit of money. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it still felt really good. And, and this then, thing opens with a conquistador in. The Mayan jungle, like right. New Spain, they were calling it. Yeah, so yeah, it just yeah. felt like this is a big budget. Like he, it's so far away. Because I felt I always think of Requiem being very internal and very like yeah. they're drugging out in an apartment. Like it's mm-hmm. it's this right. limit, like yeah. domestic setting. And this, the first thing you see is it's period piece and it's dealing with like flaming swords and mm-hmm. shit. Like it was just so different. Well, one um, of the things I noticed about all the jungle stuff is it felt very claustrophobic. Yeah. So yeah, I wonder if that's totally part of does. it where it's just like the room is this big and we're just going to fill two-thirds of it with trees and cram you guys in between. Right. Yeah. You know, so like, you know, yeah, you don't need a huge space. We're not seeing the expanse of all of that. 
Yeah, Even the coming down the trench where the they're going past the skulls on sticks and he's moving them to the side and then they get into mm-hmm. this trench and then the, it closes behind them. Yeah. And like 16 tribesmen comes through. Like it just, everything's about con- continuing to constrain the space. Yeah. Um, so there are films where they, the phrase is you can see the money on the screen, yeah. as they say. But there are plenty of films where you can't see the money on the screen, but they're still really good. Yeah. Um, actually, one that comes to mind more recently is just The Hateful Eight. Because that was done almost entirely in one cabin. Right. Much like Reservoir Dogs is almost entirely in one warehouse. Like, the money went into, well, into the actors' salaries, presumably, because of all the famous people. And shooting it on 33mm, uh, or whatever <laughs> the... Sure. But it's not, you know, visible on the screen, as it were. And so there are plenty of films that goes back and forth, and etc. But this was a film that felt like you could see the money on the screen, but then somehow also felt, but there wasn't a lot of money, but then also still felt really great. Right. Does that make sense? I, it's sort of a contradiction in that way of... Well, they, it seems like they were able to, to spend the money on the things that needed it and were able to accomplish things in the places where they didn't necessarily have it. Like right. that, yeah. So also, so $35 million budget, it says. Wow. Well, um, for 2006, it's th- that's not a bad budget. Originally planned to direct The Fountain on a $70 million budget with different people cast. Uh, but withdrawals of those, those, those actors and cost overruns led that project to be shut down. He was able to res- to resurrect the film with a sparser script. He rewrote it to be sparser and resurrected it with the thirty-five million budget and Jackman and Weiss. Sometimes and that's the best thing for a film, though, too. Yeah, like, to not know. be given that f- the freedom, the rope to hang itself with, as it were. Right. Um, Tim, although, what were you saying about like the advice, like the worst thing to give an experimental director is a oh, big yeah. ass budget, a big budget, a big like, and a remake story. actors yeah. and a remake. Yeah. Which is what Whereas this was happened to, a, no, happened to Nolan, yeah, right? It's in, insomnia, yeah. <laughs> and this was a bigger budget and mm-hmm. a pretty big star coming off of X Men. Mm-hmm. Like, well, so originally it was going to be Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. Interesting, huh? But, but uh, how is Hugh Jackman more relatable than Brad Pitt? Like, I mean, I'm sure that that movie would have been interesting and good, mm-hmm. and it would be Aronofsky, so he's still. But like, yeah. I, I'm glad it was this way. Cause yeah. Box office run of sixteen million dollars, though. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was was it people going to try and see Requiem again, or trying to see a time travel? <laughs> see, that's a good question. Who knows? Because <laughs> Requiem, I imagine, is a very different subject matter, very yeah. different tonally. Like, I've been speaking about this film. I haven't seen <laughs> with a lot of authority. I apologize. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing. Like, even with Requiem, I don't think it was like it wasn't a blockbuster. Right. So it wasn't like, I don't know how much he could rely on a ton of people being like, oh yeah, I saw Requiem. Now I want to go see right. this. You know. Except me and my friends who worked a blockbuster and all knew because of that. You know, like. Right. Um, but yeah, and I mean, yeah, I think even in the trailer, it did look kind of weird. You know, like so it's not like. Like, 2006 like weird wasn't gonna sell as well like you know yeah, it, it wasn't like, as niche driven as a lot of, like I don't know yeah you know that's funny you make me think about um, Alton Brown was talking about how part of the reason that food television as a whole got so big when it did was 9-11 that 
in media you saw a rush towards towards things like classical stories that were sort of detached from Familiar. the life but also to comfort and familiarity gotcha. and so these like the food network just exploded mm. and but on the other side of that you saw this step away from the more complicated or messy or you know sort of cerebral i, I mean it affected donnie darko I was going to say, um, if you were going to think about this film as a time travel narrative, the closest analog you probably was going to get was Donnie Darko, yeah, right? Yeah, like, that, I, they're I very similar in... But, I mean, Donnie Darko partly just because of the airplane No, stuff, that's what I'm saying, yeah. But also, I mean, 9-11 hurting Donnie yeah, Darko, right? No, for sure. But also, just because that wasn't the type of film people wanted to go see. Right. Um, and there was another one I was actually just talking about with somebody, and for the life of me, I can't recall what it was now, that, that also just was... It was going to be the blockbuster of the year, and it was coming out in October of 2011. And then it just, like, didn't, because that just wasn't the kind of movie anybody wanted anymore. Um, and on the opposite side, you know, films like... Uh, let me see if I can't actually find it and get you an actual box office uh, figure. Well, actually, better yet... Um, you said that it was $35 million was the budget? Yeah, for the for fountains, they lost. But I was, but so oh, lost a lot. I was gonna say, um, wait, well, yeah, here it is. That film called World Trade Center, which okay. also came out in two thousand six, and um, yeah, sixty five million budget, one hundred sixty three million at the box office. I saw that recently for the first time, and it was exactly what I thought it was, which is one of the most pointless movies ever made on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. um, it follows some Port Authority police. Everyone is famous. Is um, Nick Cage in that yep. one? Mm -hmm. Yep. Gotcha. Um, Michael Pena. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, they just start off by having the normal day in New York. The planes get hit. They show up. Um, you know, everything happens. Buildings collapse. Two of them are the real people who were trapped under the rubble and are two of the only 20 people that got dug out afterwards. Gotcha. Which was kind of neat knowing and, like, seeing that part of it. Right. But that's but not that's what it was about. one sliver of the film. Right. And then it's intercut with bits of their families all, you know, waiting to hear, which I've seen, and I don't, God knows how many movies I've seen now, either in the context of 9-11 or of everything else ever made, Let's Pearl see, Harbor and Soldiers like, and yada, yada, right. yada. I, I, how many families have I seen stare worryingly at their TV screen? You know, I, I there was nothing there. And it, to be fair, it didn't step into this, like, hero worship level of, like, ah, oh, let's fall at the feet of all these people. It just presented... I just wanted to present a, you know, here's what it was like, as much as we can tell, to be there. And See, to and that end, like did it, it really well. Of, but, yeah, shrug, you yeah. know? <laughs> I feel like there was this boom of apocalyptic, like, disaster movies after 9-11. You got, like, the perfect storm <laughs> yeah. and those kinds. Of, I'm not sure about the timeline on that, but it just felt like there were tidal wave movies and all the, like, and that's what people were flocking to see, because if you could see the problem in the theater and people survive it and, and then solve it and win solve, right. like that seemed to be comforting and in a similar vein uh, Mark Wahlberg did a lot of these this, his this whole his whole American Hero series I've been calling it with um, <laughs> yeah. Lone Survivor right and uh, Sniper no not American Sniper because that was no no not, not American Sniper Sniper oh. came before that or that, Shooter Shooter yeah, it was Shooter but that wasn't one of Wahlberg's projects he did like four in a row but um, but Lone Survivor is apparently really good. Um, it sort of it's it just struck me like yeah, there's a place for this sort of. They're building up these 
I'll say like the new John Wayne movies, right? Like the new Sands of Iwo Jima of just like, yeah, let's go make movies that here's, are about what's going on. Let's give us a hero to hero. focus on and a good cause to stand behind. Right. And I, I, those are all a, a topic I don't want to bother getting into. But World Trade Center was not that. But because it wasn't that, it was felt pointless. Gotcha. It, I, I think I would have hated it if it was. Mm-hmm. I would have felt like it was manipulative and propaganda-y and like, right. ah. But then because it wasn't, it was sort of, and especially when it was in 2006, it was like, hey, here's what happened five years ago. It's like, yeah. We were there. I remember. I think yeah. World Trade Center will get a lot more, have a lot more import in 15 years from now when there are people who weren't there who have something to look at that instead of being, you know, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, right. it'll be just we tried to show what it would have been like right. to have cameras be there on the ground. I think that's where its value will come through. But sorry, anyway, the point is that those kinds of films have been doing really well, and or were doing really well in right. that era after 9-11. And other films just, they had a, not that they got crippled, but, you know, the, the tone shifted. It's just, it's, it, it's very experimental. It's very, cause, and it's mm-hmm. dealing with death, like, in a very candid and, like, for all its metaphor, this is about coping with the inevitability and the inescapable nature of death. It almost feels like it would have done better now. I was going to ask. It would be interesting with the streaming service and the direct-to-video. And yeah. those... Like, if this Just came with out the word on of Shutter or... Yeah, yeah. Because, because so many other... I, I, there are a lot of films people talk about all the time that are now cult classics. Right. Like The Fountain mm-hmm. or Blade Runner or, or whatever Donnie else. Or, yeah. That didn't make... And, and for, for decades before, that didn't make waves at the time or make money at the time, but are now remembered as at least significant to the art or just have a good following right. or whatever. But lately, and by lately I really do mean the last eight years or so, that, not, yeah. not very long, yeah. we have a much greater ability for those types of films to get, to get a wide theater yeah. release and then get traction with the people who need to get them their money. You know what I mean? To, yeah. Because you're less susceptible to that one trailer you saw on the TV the one right. weekend. And so you get less of the problem of, of, you know, where the currents are flowing, which, I mean, is obviously still a big deal in the industry, but right. where the currents are flowing, and a much greater chance of, well, let's just have this do, you know, one of the medium-sized theaters in each of the locations of our chain. Right. And, you know, we'll go on the internet, and it'll show up in the same places where people are talking about Donnie Darko and talking about... Uh, Blade Runner and talking about other films. See, and this seems like something that like Netflix would have bought as like instead of paying for the marketing or trying to get it out in the theaters. The mm-hmm. idea that a streaming service was like, yeah, we'll put that out. That's mm-hmm. that's our brand. We like that. That would be really cool. And it it, it it's I totally lost my strain of thought. Sorry. Just like it, it doesn't. It feels like it would be right at home in today like it, it doesn't feel dated at all except for the fact that Hugh Jackman is really young in it like it it feels very modern and timeless it, it, it doesn't seem like it's aged much at all I, I was thought I was struck the other week about um I think was it Polar even I the Mads Mikkelsen yeah, maybe it, John Wick in the Snow it was one of the like eight films we talked about recently <laughs> and we talk about films all the time we so, do this a lot off but, podcast um, <laughs> but Basically, that a lot of films that did well in the festival circuit recently have Netflix just bought them. Yeah. That instead of them negotiating deals with the theater owners to make theater runs, they just 
but Netflix just said, yeah, just put it on Netflix for eight months. Done. And I thought, that's that's great, because festival films, sometimes they come to theaters and they do well. Sometimes they come to theaters and they don't do well, right. regardless of how well they did at the festival. Right. Sometimes they just don't. You just never see them again, right. or they come out on DVD three years from now. And they now have this third option of streaming services. And it's also like in it, it's a good marketing technique too because they put it on their their opening banner. It's like, hey, well, here's what's new. Here's the trailer starting before yeah. you even clicked on it. Like, it it gets a lot of FaceTime without doing anything else. Without the overhead of a theater run. Yeah, you don't have to worry about distribution or marketing in the same. Like, if you have Netflix, yeah. you see that this thing is new, and then it's in your face. Especially face. since a lot of films that make it to festivals aren't necessarily coming from a studio in the first place. Right. You know. Yeah. So I was checking to see like if any of these are on Netflix, and I remember seeing Mother is on Hulu. Yeah. But then also Hulu's been really weird lately, where like I think the Fountain came up and it was like watch with your stars add-on. So I think right. like it's almost like other other like companies are like piggybacking on Hulu yeah, or something. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so Requiem shows up on Hulu just it's as Standard. a movie. Um, what was it? Uh, let's see, Noah watch with live TV so I think that's something you pay extra for on Hulu or something Um, and then what was Mother yeah that's just on Hulu as it is but yeah Mm -hmm. I think The Fountain was the one with stars yeah I think Hulu's more yeah watch with stars add on since Hulu does like the CBS shows and the NBC shows like the day after that they're on there they have these weird deals with Hulu's Mm -hmm. The, stu- the TV companies and Hulu are really tightly interwoven, actually. Right. Hulu's kind of distinct from a lot of the other streaming services right. out there. Um, but I, that mid-aughts stuff is really... Because stuff that gets made now is made with the consideration of That's where are the streaming right. rights going to go yeah. Yeah. when the theater run is done and the DVDs are out, where, right. you know, who's going to be playing this? And stuff that was made at you know, Mystery Train or whatever, that wasn't a thing at all. Right. So it studios may have held on to the rights in the hope of more DVD sales, you know, or they may have just, you know, let them go or whatever. But those have sort of ended up just all over the place. But meanwhile, in the mid-aughts, you had this weird sort of, some companies were jumping on it, but some companies weren't. And I just, it was funny to me that, like, Stars has the fountain. Right. What? Okay, (laughs) how did that get there? This kind of really, like, Regency was a pretty big production company too, right? Like, that's who did... Like it, it's up there with like New Line Cinema and those think. like from way back Touchstone well, Pictures and those things. Like I did the thing like the old VHS and it's that <laughs> moon with the brush stroke through it. Regency is apparently still around. Yeah, it's not yeah. as big as it used to be. They were founded in 1991. Oh wow! But they are owned by 20th Century Fox. See, yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. No, um, 20% stake. That Fox has gotcha. the 80% is still the founder Arnon, Arnon Milchen Ray Kroc no different no. thing <laughs> Arnon Milchen I probably butchered that name that's the second joke about the founder today <laughs> so there you go interesting but you're right I just I haven't seen it as much around right even like Amblin right Spielberg's company yeah there were all these little names we saw you know oh that's the one with the E.T. Right? yeah, with yeah. The, like yeah uh, yeah, they just Fox has a twenty percent stake. That's all Wikipedia says is they're still going. I guess I don't know. Gotcha. Hmm. Filmography here. We can if we want to look at something more recent. Um, 
2010s. Let's start as most recently as possible, shall we? Oh, Widows. I saw that. Oh, shit. Yeah. Is it good? It looked really good. It was. I actually, I really, Widows and Ocean's 8 are two opposite sides of a coin, and they're great together. Excellent. It, I mean, they are anyway, just because they're both heist movies, but Widows is the serious right. conspiracy one, and Ocean's 8 is the lighthearted is comedy. Is the Ocean's Universe fun one. Right. But then on top of that, they both are have main women casts. Right. Just happened to come out at roughly the same time, and at a time in cinema when that's a big deal right now. And it, I just, I, almost anything you could ever ask for of, you know, can you make a good serious film with women? Widows. Can you make a good joke film with Ocean's 8? Can you make a good film that takes the womanhood into the nature of the characters and their struggle? Widows. Can you make a good film that just has them be fun cake? Ocean's 8. Like, no matter what your question is, yep, one of them. Done. Like, you can do it. <laughs> These shouldn't be novelties because they've been done so well. No, right. Gotcha. Like, they're the, they're going to be the kicking off point, I think, for, for quite a bit. But um, gotcha. Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, co-production. Oh. Interesting. Co-production, co-production. The 2018 Girl in the Spider's Web. Yeah, because there's was two that, different productions. I missed though. that entirely. Was that with Claire Foy? I don't know if it's that one. Because they're bringing Claire Foy back, right? Isn't that the one that kicks the... See, that's what I don't know, is I've that? seen the trailers for it, yeah. and I started seeing them popping up again, but I don't know if it's because it's coming out on video now, and I missed it in the theaters. Well, there's one There's one that's getting a theater release soon, okay. and I don't know if it's Claire Foy or the Dutch one. I think See, it's See, I just want to know what happened to Rooney Marrow. <laughs> So if we go back to the the most recent that doesn't say co-production on right. it, because you know co-production with MGM, co-production with Film Four, co-production with yada yada, we get to 2015. Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip. Okay. <laughs> um, and then before that same year, Unfinished Business, which I I don't know what that haven't is. heard of. I'll click on that real quick. It looks like a comedy. It says best business trip ever. Yep. Okay, didn't hear about that. Hmm. Oh, whoa, wait, no, I need to go forward again. I caught a sentence there that I need to, like, look at again. Um, unfinished business. Box office bomb, yes, sir. That's why we didn't hear about that. Um, the Road Trip 6. I'm sorry, I... Gosh, I... Wrong turn 6. The Road Trip 6. Or I was thinking about unfinished business and the yeah. business trip. Wrong turn 6. Last resort, so... One of those never-ending horror franchises. Oh, I see. throwing money gotcha. at. Um, Tim and I talked about this, and we will in a moment. Co-production, Birdman. Co-production, Gone Girl. So they're still very much in the... Noah. Noah. But okay. that makes sense, considering they were on board with The Fountain. So, I mean... So it's not... Ar Aronofsky doesn't have uh, Runner, Runner, company? Broken City. I don't think so. The Maybe. Darkest Hour. In Time. Love that. In Time is excellent. Love and Other Drugs. Date night, night and day, the Tom Cruise one. Oh, no, so gotcha. they're, they're around, um, but I also don't see Mother on here, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know, <laughs> but um, but I was so to go back to the horror for a moment. I was talking to Tim the other day about uh, we were talking about Blumhouse and how horror is often very low budget, e easy to do with no budget, yeah. and you can just kind of throw money at those projects and. And you can figure out actors and directors and writers and what they're good at and what they aren't and where they should go and where they shouldn't and and just keep making those and just kind of rake money in. And we looked up uh, Blumhouse and, and their Universal partnership and everything. Yeah. 
and it's just they're gonna do an movie invisible man after movie after movie that's horror or horror sequel you know Ron Turn 6 or yeah. whatever and when we clicked on them to go to the the film page you know budget 10 mil you know box office 12 mil Yep. Right? <laughs> budget, 8 mil. Box office, 16 mil. <laughs> budget, 2 mil. Box office, 1.9 mil. And, you know, <laughs> that one didn't do yeah. as well. Right. And I, this is going to sequel next season. Right. But just that, that was such... Um, I think the question that sparked it, Tim, was you You said there are a lot of horror movies around. And I was like... No, I said it must be tough to make a horror movie nowadays. Oh, yes. What I was going to say is that, like, and to it, actually still scare people. Right. Because and that's, people are so... Yes. Yeah. You're right in terms of to make, like, the next Alien. Oh, man so difficult like to make a horror movie that will will enter the canon and stand the test of time is a herculean task but jordan peele to, seems to be doing pretty well <laughs> so, hey he's got one down we'll see let's us wait. looks really let's really good it comes too out. but yes um but you know to just whack a horror movie together and make a profit nah not that hard <laughs> right for sure not easy but not that hard i wonder what the budget was on mandy Eventually, we will watch Mandy, which is an incredible horror film starring Nicolas Cage. I'll bet you that one is going to be pretty low budget because it was a a horror and oh, b a festival so circuit. Fucking good, like festival pleaser. I just. But that's the thing. It's another. It's a similar atmospheric film to The Fountain, and I've heard nothing but good things. But it it had a limited theater release, and now it's on streaming services. Budget six million, box office one point four. What the hell? For Mandy? Six yeah. million for Mandy? Yeah. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to The Fountain in 20, 2006. 35 million for The Fountain in 2006, yeah. Holy crap. Six million. Well, I told you that would be nothing, man. That's outstanding. <laughs> but that's 1.4 mil box lens, office. <laughs> but, on the other hand... It like, wasn't in the theater set long. Right? Well, I didn't, I didn't even see it in any theaters around here. It was like a here. two or three <laughs> month engagement on most places, but... So that's... Because that's its own problem, I guess, is... And that's a, a larger, broader problem people are, are having just with with streaming is how do we measure this in terms of a film's success? The metrics are changing, you know? Yeah. Films that don't have a box office release or have a limited one. Aren't necessarily failures. Aren't necessarily because... failures, right. And then I think you, Joel, mentioned to me... No, you did, Tim, about like well, TV person. shows that come up on Netflix. And then, like, I only just watched The Dragon Prince recently. And I binged it, and it was amazing, and I loved it. Is it animated? Yeah, and season two ca- is coming it. out next week. And that was kind of what did it, was that I saw an ad for season two. It reminded me that I hadn't watched it yet right. and had wanted to, and I did. But, like, if the Netflix executives are sitting there looking at the Dragon Prince's performance, after one month, after two, after six, right. after ten, like, when does it be a success? How it's long so does it have to ne- stay on Netflix right. to make a profit, and then... How long counts? Because you know, with a with a theater run, you have the theater run. It makes its box office amount. That's it. Yes, no, fail, success. Okay. But with this, like, what if they put this out and no one watched it, and they just never bothered to take it off because it didn't take up enough server space? And then, like, eight years later, boom, everyone watches it. Right. Does it suddenly become a thing that made a profit that they right. want to go make more of? Like, that's the thing. Netflix <sighs> doesn't release any of its user data. Like, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. We don't know any how they track things if they're assessing it and it, I mean it's got to be a better model than the Nielsen family <laughs> test you know. models right like it, it would have to be just by we know when somebody's clicked to watch this we know I mean yeah. it, that would be an interesting thing for them to release is like how they're tracking data and that's the thing like with certain shows like Sense8 who got cancelled 
and had complications and all this stuff. Like, where was there was all this outrage afterwards? Like, where yeah. is? But did how many of those people watched it beforehand? Right. Yeah. How and many of the them thing. heard like, about the cancellation? Right. Then yeah. still watched it because unlike a regular TV show, their hands weren't tied. Of like, oh, it'll never air again. Right. Like, yeah. They just went on Netflix and fired it up. Exactly. You know. Yeah. That was something John was saying about uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead. Yeah. That you know that got canceled after so many seasons, and yeah, people were complaining, but it's just like you guys weren't watching this as it was coming out to show people to show them that enough people cared about this mm-hmm. that we should keep making it. So you can't sort of just sit back and let it come and go, and then be like, oh, I wish there was more of that. It's like, yeah, if you had watched it, you know, and, and that's something I try to keep in mind. Yeah, like with the Dragon Prince, like I watched that pretty early on, and when mm-hmm. the season two comes out, I want to make sure to jump oh, yeah. on that too. I'll be but, that immediately. but there are just so many shows coming out, like you can't keep up with everything, and it's like, and I'm so behind, and it's it's not even a matter of picking. Okay, these two shows came out this weekend. Which one are you going to watch? It's like the four shows that came out a month ago that I still haven't <laughs> yeah, finished. Right. You know. Yeah. And Tim was joking off podcast about like needing to, a break. They need to just yeah. They need to start making <laughs> crap television again so yeah. that we can re reassess and like. Yeah. I, it's it's tough too lately in the area of the era of the internet that people a lot of people seem to think that when something they like comes around, they'll be at, they'll just yell about it as vocally as they do when it goes away. You know, like right. cancel my show. Oh, I'm angry. So they think in reverse. Like if the show gets uncancelled or if a, a show that they like the same comes along, they'll do the they'll they'll yell just as much. But this is awesome instead of this is crap, and then they sort of are shocked when that gets cancelled too. And it, no money, that is the only thing. Did this turn a profit or not? Because obviously they can't just keep making things at a loss. So like no matter how much you yell about that other show being good, if you didn't watch it in a way that benefited their bottom line they're still gonna cancel it because they're still losing money okay and video games have the same problem here's the thing as a staunch defender of hannibal (laughs) and you guys know i probably have said this on the podcast before i watched that as it aired on nbc yep i downloaded it from itunes when it hit itunes at midnight i watched (laughs) it on hulu at that point because i was waiting for it to download that at midnight, I watched it on Hulu so it would get the the numbers, and then I watched it the next morning. Like I yeah. watched that move that show no, three times. Like you did your part, and that's yeah. the thing. Like it, yeah. it's that's something so frustrating about the Netflix model is that we don't understand if we knew what we had to do to help contribute to the numbers of a mm-hmm. thing, yeah. we'd we do those things. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like if I need to put on, if I could get Daredevil season four, and all I have to do is leave Daredevil on a loop for the next six months. I do it because yeah. I love that show. I would like to see more of it. The third season was incredible, and we could totally go further with it. Like it, it's, and that has other considerations than yeah. just viewership. Obviously, no, right. it was popular. But, it's going to go right. on Disney streaming. Because like, like with games, it's they have a similar problem, but it's a little easier to to, to help with. Um, you know, Ace Combat recently came back mm-hmm. after forever. Out of Tim the Scott found a reason to talk about Ace Combat. And, uh, <laughs> but but the thing is. With we're you know when I'm talking to other fans about we're so excited this is great we when it came out we went and bought it yeah like no question there like, and yeah. and I mean you know wait for a review don't pre-order as people say you know make sure it doesn't turn out to be hot garbage and that way yeah. but we bought it you know first week first month like they're still looking it it is not only the highest selling game in the franchise right now by a huge margin but also one of the highest selling games in the UK in like for the past twelve months. 
Yeah, people apparently. are enjoying so it. So thank like, you, Brit- thank you, Britain. Yeah, but like, well, they got a cool what... like pre-order thing, right? Like uh, they had yeah, some don't cool... even get started. <laughs> You're but, um, mad because you can't have it. All the different regions got it's a whole thing. But um, <laughs> but the point is, like, like you said about we knew what to do. We yeah. knew that if we went and bought it within a certain amount of time from its release, they would see that money and they would go, "This is a popular franchise, and we should make more of it because mm-hmm. people are buying it." But with TV, it's a little harder. But also, I get a lot of people who. To use your Hannibal thing, they just sort of watched Hannibal when they kind of came across it one day right. after cancellation or like within a season of cancellation, you know? And then they, oh, it's gone. Oh, but that was so good. And I'm like, okay, sure. You tweeted you liked it. But then when that when what was the last season came out, you didn't, you watch, didn't watch it for three months. Right. No, that's like fair. So they thought it flopped. Or, or did they? We don't know. But, you know, it's sort of, you, you need to do your part and you need to do your part in a way that they, they notice that they feel but the other thing is like what Tim says is that there's so much to watch like yeah. how do I pick and choose yeah. if we're and just how... keeping up with stuff that comes out as it comes out right. we're never watching the other stuff exactly. we want to play. and that's the thing like if you, you sleep on a series like I know I'm going to like that I'm going to get to it like Altered yeah. Carbon I haven't watched yet still mm-hmm. and like I, there's other stuff that's come out since then that I've watched and it's like at what point do I go back? Does it contribute? I just don't know how it works. We're supposed to be talking about the fountain. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's, there are no rules. It's not just to go where it goes. That's right. It always has. It always will. Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking. Like, I feel like we're avoiding the big discussion about the fountain, like about death. We're not having a conversation about the content of it. We're, we've talked about like the the performances and the visuals and like. But, like, I feel like we're a little skittish around the idea of this is a pretty... Oh, God, do you want well, to go actually, there? Well, I just don't know. Hold on, hold on. Just transition, motherfucker, we can go there. Transition a little more smoothly since... <laughs> why, why start now? <laughs> well, well, no, wait. Is third you film shit. you said, Tim? Third I, film. Yeah, so yeah. what was after this? Noah? No. Uh, no, I think the... Is it the wrestler or the boxer? Which one did he so do with Mickey was, Rourke? Yeah, the wrestler. Somewhere wrestler. In there. The first was Pi. Then Requiem. Then Requiem. Then this. Which was a big hit. Then this. And I don't know where Black Swan falls exactly in there. I think Black Swan was before. Well, my point uh, is, like, this movie bombed hard, as we saw, mm-hmm. despite coming after Requiem, which... The Wrestler, 2008, that's followed the by Black Swan two so years later. So how did The Wrestler do? Because that, that did well, right? People liked it. I don't know that it did all that right. well. It, it was a lot more normal, It was a critical think, darling, yeah. but, I mean, so is everything. Nominated for two Oscars, whatever that means. <laughs> in terms of to be fair that well, helps the box office no I, I know I'm I'm saying like there's no monetary yeah cachet on that I'll, I'll check the continue but talking but I just like like the fountain came along and it did not do well at the box office but eventually he made another movie he got given the keys to the car again and lately that feels like it's happening less and less like with Especially with people like Sensate, for example, or other stuff. Just yeah. it feels like once, like, oh. I guess just that people are. Yeah. Sorry, they made no, the wrestler please. for six million dollars and turned a box office profit of forty four point okay. seven. So there it is. So that is was... They gave him less money. That answers my question. Well, yeah, but I think it was is, much like, more regular. Right, yeah. is that when the fountain more. didn't do well? How did he get them to give them more money? Like, like oh, you know, it was Fox well, Searchlight like, too. Yeah, but when it was like you wanted more money than that for the fountain, and you, you know, and it, 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 you know, bombed horribly. Like, why should we give you more for another film? And it was well, we can do this with six million. And they were like, okay, we can spin the critical praise, and we can play on the requiem for a dream stuff, 
and we can try to dredge this up, and it's only six million only. So there you go. Only, yeah. And also, but like, what, I'm sorry, Tim. I, I'm trying to. I I haven't got there yet, but I swear I'm getting closer. I, with something like Sense8, <laughs> like Sense8 got canceled, mm-hmm. or like Hannibal got canceled, but I feel like just less and less. I'm not seeing the same people show up again. Like Joss Whedon and Firefly, we've seen him do a lot of stuff. The was Sensei also a Joss Whedon? No, that him? was no. Uh, the Wachowskis and um, J. Michael Straczynski. Oh, right, right. Like, it is even lot, which show? is why it was such a load I blew. Like, oh my god, <laughs> two of my favorite worlds coming together. <laughs> Holy like, shit. That's what I mean about it. We eventually see them come back, you know, even if they have a failure. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like we're seeing that less and less. Because how many of those people that we name with multiple chances like that? There are people like Joss Whedon who come from the mid-aughts, from more than a decade ago now. Mm-hmm. How many people more recently have had some success and then some failure and then gotten another shot? I just, well, I, I think Brian Fuller from Hannibal has. I mean, he had Pushing Daisies, which didn't do very well, and then he got Hannibal, and then Hannibal did three seasons, and then he's on American Gods. Yeah. And then he's on the... Um, He's got some writing credit on the new Star Trek Discovery series. Okay. So I mean, I mean, it, it's half a dozen. Like, of the other when was that. when was pushing daisies? <laughs> that would have been early two thousands. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. But I'm saying, like, he's he keeps getting shots. Is what I'm saying. That's what I mean. How many people who do keep getting shots only started within the last ten years? I don't even know. Because there's just that, so much too. That right. tracing it would be difficult. Like but that's my point of like that whole culture of okay this was a flop but we, there's talent here that we can respin. yeah i i feel like i'm just seeing less of that gotcha you know if if us doesn't do well do you think we're gonna see another film from him you're goddamn studio right, gonna will. take yes take the chance yeah well, plus yeah, he's doing maybe uh, what's maybe it? get out will uh, be enough but, but he's doing twilight zone he did key and peel like there's a lot of like fan cachet yeah. like people will go and pay money to see his movies keanu was really good which is the blue cat, Keanu. right? Yeah. Like that's his I first that. direct is his directorial, directorial debut, debut as they say. Yeah. and then Get Out was phenomenal after that. Like, and if Us takes a bath, like he'll get at least one more. Like, yeah. I'm gonna see whatever he makes from now on because he he's he's built up that forgiveness in me. Right. Anyway, but no, I I understand what you're saying. I think there's just so much content that like giving people who failed another shot is like it's a dime a dozen there's so much content coming yeah. out now it's like yeah. we, we're trying to fund as much as possible and get as much return out, out of his can- if you're not here you go over there and make something like yeah. it, that might be the, the case where well, were we I'm sorry Tim I cut you off like eight times there yeah no um, well I wonder if part of it has to do with like 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 we were saying you know he did this film at Bombs and then he did The Wrestler so is it like if you can kind of convince them that the reason it bombed is because of this, not because of me, because of these things. So if I do this stuff, which is not those things, right. then it'll it'll work. And okay, we'll give you one more chance. Oh, okay, good, it worked. You're right, you know. And then kind of you you know build that cloud back up again. And yeah, and my question is, are those conversations happening anymore? You know, I don't know. It's no, nobody knows. See, and I think the wrestler was interesting because Mickey Rourke hadn't made a movie in a long time. This was kind of his like his return. Oh, so that's what I was going to ask. Right. Was that before or after Tarantino. Iron Man two? It was before. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of what launched him back right. in and probably the... And he, he, he got, like, plastic surgery, so there was a little bit, like, like this weird, like, go see this movie because he's messed up his face for it. Like, mm-hmm. there's that. And then I think because it was Fox Searchlight, 
it got an initial push like people like really liked Mickey Rourke and then it got an Oscar nods and they're like okay then you get the push of like people going to see it before the Oscars and it had that mm-hmm. extended run on uh, um, in the theaters so I think a lot of that money that 44 million might have been generated in the push through the to the Oscars that mm-hmm. might be a thing but it yeah I really want to see that I've been sleeping on that one for a long time I need to but like you said, it's it's more. How is it more of a relatable story? It's about an aging wrestler who loves what he does, and it's just a really good act. I don't know, like it, but it's, it's less. It's more palatable, I guess, yeah. than this. This people people like wrestling. People like <laughs> underdog stories. You know, it's people like, like Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei as a stripper. The, yeah, these yeah. are the things that sell tickets. Like, yeah, I can see that. And yeah. I mean, I'm, I haven't seen it either, and like I'm, I'm so hesitant to see it because like it's the one that I saw haven't seen yet so it's out of sequence like right. so going backwards I'm, I'm interested to see how it will be framed with all the others and in, in sort of the, the the trajectory of his work this still must be like to see it net like right after pi like to see where it changed in two, just two yeah. years you know um but but yeah like i could see where maybe he still found a way to to work a bunch of really cool metaphor in there but it's from a more like uh more palatable story more you know relatable in the sense that there's nothing supernatural happening I, I assume I've never seen it maybe there is supernatural stuff happening I don't know you know the main thing I, I, I had taken away from an interview with Mickey Rourke about it is like I always used to think this thing is fake it it's scripted it's not fake it yeah. hurts yeah. it yeah. really hurt because I mean Rick, Mickey Rourke was a boxer growing oh, up okay. so he he's familiar with kind of combat sports as a, a background and then coming into his, as a boxer like these guys are not throwing real punches and just like I it broke things in me that are still broken like oh, just for this movie so that that yeah. I was I always liked that that he acknowledged that it was engaging in that way and yeah it, I had a whole shift with wrestling when I I went from the not even thinking about it ever to oh it's fake oh I thought it was like a sport and then I just continued to not think about it because I don't know it never I never had reason to and positively then or negatively. Fell in love with it, and it's been <laughs> well, shoving but, it in your face. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But, but you and and a couple other people I talked to around the same time. It just it was, kind of like what you said about it's scripted but not fake. Like the moment someone said to me said that not that literally, but it it felt more like a like a more like a TV show. Yeah, like no, it is a, not even a soap opera necessarily. It just is any, though. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah. I mean, sure. But you know, more like. You know, Game of Thrones, Lafea Masbea, wrestling. We have these characters. We're concerned about what's happening to them. We're gonna join in this week and see the plot. How the yeah. plot develops. Done. And I was like, Well, yeah, that's great. Heck yeah, wrestling's awesome. Like, why not? I just that alone sort of turned me around from being indifferent to just being like, this Well, is yeah, this is cool. Yeah. Like, why? Why are we? Why wouldn't you write a, write a show like this? You know, Monday Night Raw is. 25 years old it has had an episode a week for 25 years it's the longest running tv show in american history oh, yeah. it's insane <laughs> like and it doesn't have seasons it just keeps going yeah. like a season is a year yeah. Damn. you get That's 52 amazing. episodes a year there's more of that, that than shift Simpsons. in perspective yes yeah. there is. <laughs> you know? the writing has suffered considerably throughout different stretches of it and it hasn't always been the most woke it has never yeah. been the most woke but <laughs> It, it's a fun little <laughs> corner of it. And that's the thing. Like, it'd be really interesting to see Aronofsky deal with fight choreography in that way. That like, it's 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 a different frame. It would be mm-hmm. really cool. I I feel it's funny because I haven't seen the wrestler, 
But if you said to me Aronofsky and fighting, I would actually start to think about um, Bronson. Ooh. Just mm. because Bronson had a little bit of that esotericism that we yeah. got in The Fountain. Right. But it had that sort of gritty, you know, punchiness, literally, yeah. <laughs> that that uh, that pie had. Yeah. You know, and it... I just want to see the the camera mounted on the face of somebody going over the top rope like that. That would be really cool. I don't know. We didn't see a whole lot of that. We what I did we did see the kind of those are very two thousand like early two thousands things where you're you're the frame is upside down yeah. and as something comes through it flips and you see the other side of you it. You know what though? And they did it just enough to like remind me of that trait, but not to frustrate me with <laughs> yeah. it. Like I liked that a lot. Well, I think they did it once in each time period, right? Oh, okay, guys, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. As far as I could tell. Yeah. The cinematography was not very dynamic in that the camera was very stationary it was. all the time. Yeah. And we maybe got two or three angles for every room that we might jump between or just stick with one the whole time. Right. But it was still phenomenal. Yeah. Still superb. I, a lot of people, when you talk to them about cool cinematography, they think about cool motion. Yeah. Cool camera movement or stuff moving in relation to it or weird upside downness or whatever. But there's so much more. So to see this sort of, this kind of just classic, classic pinnacle of pinnacle of classic cinematography, done in two thousand six right. with all these special effects, it was neat. And it's 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 weird to think about it being kind of stationary or like simple camera movement with so much happening on screen, like mm-hmm. in the frame. There's so much going on, but the camera is steady, and that that's really interesting. Because that's the thing when when you see experimental camera movement. You take note of it because it's so unnerving. If it mm-hmm. comes in from a weird angle, yeah. I was watching. Uh, I think it was uh, Blood on Black Lace, which is a, a Italian horror film, yeah. and they have these shots where it's like coming at an angle. It's almost like on an arc, and it's coming like you see the profile of someone's face, and it juts around it, and you see every second of that motion. It's really unsettling and really evident on screen when you watch it. it it's just, yeah. For so much to happen in the frame, and the camera's not moving. Mm-hmm. Simple cinematography doesn't seem like an appropriate description of it, no. but it is. Cause Non-complicated the, right, seems like yeah. a more appropriate term. Right. <laughs> well, stuff like that always kind of makes me think of it like like with theater, you know, because you don't yes. have like cinematography. It's no, just for sure. you're staring at this one square the whole time, and it's all about what the actors are doing, and to a lesser degree, props and sets or whatever. But like, but yeah, you're not relying on the the director forcing your perspective right. in one way or another you know it's almost you know it's almost like a painting like okay we're letting the painter decide where your eye is drawn but you know it's not like you're going to take the painting up and flip it around and look at it from oh what if i put put it between my legs and look you know it's like it's right. like no it's there like you just you just watch it you know i want there to be an interactive museum like that like that's the exhibit <laughs> is like down <laughs> and i feel if i men- mentioned this did I say this during the podcast? Was it before? Where like the how he'd have like the little montages and that was before. That was yeah. before. Okay. I was gonna. So yeah. So like yeah. in Pi, you know, whenever he would start to get a migraine, he would pop his pills. It was like this these cuts of all these little scenes. You know, like um, you know him opening the pills, popping them, drinking the water, and it was like okay, this is kind of like breaks it up. But um, and then he carried that over into Requiem, where every time they did drugs, it was like, okay, we're going to, you know, cook the heroin, you know, suck it up, put it, put it, you know, you see the blood going to the needle, you see them, you know, the eye, eyes dilating, you know. Um, 
So it was kind of neat how he didn't do that exactly in this, but that concept carried over where he had these like reoccurring scenes or themes, like the one where you know he would like whisper to the tree or go to touch it, and you'd see the little fibers lift up. And then we see later he's like whispering to her neck as she's sleeping, and it's just like, oh, okay, that's that same. And it's a lot of the same lines get reused. Visual and, thematics. Yeah, but it, but it was great that he wasn't using the exact same because if you watch what he did in Pi and in Requiem. Like it's it's the same exact thing, but just with different scenes that he's like right. rapidly throwing at you. Whereas this, it was like, okay, I want that idea, but I want it to be appropriate to this film, but also appropriate to whatever thematic material I'm carrying over. You know, there there aren't drugs in this thing. You know, I mean, there was a little reference, like whenever he'd eat the piece of the bark, like that was also right. kind of reminiscent of that. Um, but it was done. I wonder what that you know, was in like really what right, it was yeah. you know. So that interesting, the, the, like yogurt coming out of the tree, the sap. Yeah, like see, in, and that was interesting too. That when he's going in the the bubble up, and he's doing that, it's not. You don't see really the effects of that on him. But when he had, and that was an unfortunately colored liquid coming out of the tree. Um, <laughs> but when he, yeah, it, it, shot with it, the fingers. Like, yeah. Oh, he's fourteen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it just it consumes him from inside. It grows out of him. It it, mm-hmm. it, it eats him. And it's like, does the cure eat him? It, it's another metaphor layer, right? Well, like, that, it was that the character had finally found his eternal life, but that it was just it wasn't death. as. Yeah, it, it was, was a new form of life. Yeah, the, not, what is the yeah. roadway, the gateway to awe? Yeah, death, death is the gateway to awe. Yeah, which was exactly. an interesting. Reminded me a little of the Inception, the idea that this your your world isn't real. Mm-hmm. The only escape is death. Like the the idea that was planted in uh, mm-hmm. Marion. What's her name? Mo. Mo I don't. Marion Cotillard. Yeah, her character. Oh, you say that. Yeah. It was immensely frustrating in that movie, um, but that that. It, it was a little weird because it was like the idea of death as a, a doorway or a gateway to this thing mm-hmm. made it almost encouraging suicide in a little, little I know that wasn't the point yeah. but it, it kind of coming at that was yeah. a, an interesting way of looking at it and, and it was her way of making peace with it that yeah. this is not the end death there's a the gateway end, right. and then I I won't I can't fly in this body but if my nutrients are absorbed by a tree and the tree mm-hmm. produces fruit and the bird eats that. Mm-hmm. I'm part of that system, mm-hmm. you know, which was interesting. The little, I mentioned that Tim would like Evangelion mm-hmm. a bit partway through this. And yeah. what the click part was, one of the bigger themes of Ava is, is, I mean, where we come from, where life comes from, a lot of spiritual stuff, but also what death is and after death and yada yada. But yeah. the thing that I particularly tend to come back to is the the thematic that that life is worth living despite the despite and because of the negatives like to have one of the the sort of arguments that happens in the show without spoiling anything is that um this i wish there was just nothing because then there wouldn't be any pain but then when presented with nothing the character also sort of but then there is also nothing good. That the good makes the bad worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That we can choose to do that or try to, etc. Anyway, the part of that that struck me in Fountain was that everybody in the film was trying to get Hugh Jackman to go home and spend time with his dying wife. And that was the like that that yes, that there can be that the the death is coming. He sees it on the horizon. He sees this horrible suffering that must come. But like to make it worthwhile to help dull it, sort of, 
not to dull it, but to sort of the way you shore yourself up against the inevitable is not to stop it, but to twist it, to embrace it, to go home, go spend, have that joy. Right. Have that happiness. Just go for So that when the sadness comes, there's reason. Yeah. But also, you know, you have something to, to, to warm you against its coldness. Yeah. That was the part that sort of made me turn to Tim. Was like, you should watch that show. Yeah. Um, and then we talked about Cloud Atlas and about the Tree of Life, which I didn't see, but I remember having a lot of sunlight through leaves and, yeah. you know, tree of The other thing that this film vividly reminded me of, and only for about 30 seconds, and you'll know exactly when, Annihilation. Yeah. <laughs> the flowers, right, yeah. in the shape yeah. of... Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's it, that's, that's all. Those were the four things this film reminded me of as we went. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, but, um, but in keeping with Annihilation, and with a lot of other, lots of other stuff, actually in keeping a little bit with Speaker of the Dead, For the Dead, the, the book Speaker for the Dead, the Ender's Game sequel, Oh, yeah. That whole, that idea that life is beyond the body you're in. Right. And then the transformation from body to plant and et cetera, that, that, that comes into, into that as well. See, that's a, like, as somebody is mortified of the idea of death, like, the, <laughs> this wasn't as, it didn't lock in, because this is just a lot of information about me. When I get into the cycle, like, you're going to die, there's going to be nothing, that what you're living now is temporary and you're not your fucking khakis like those thoughts it spirals and I can't get out of that headspace and it's terrifying I hyperventilate it's just mm-hmm. so watching this I was a little worried because that with this subject matter but the way that they move it off of the main character we're dealing with the death of somebody else and coping right. with that and how he handles it is something that was al- allowing me to get distance from it mm-hmm. and it was it's interesting to think about this might be too heady and existential, but I was talking to my friend Alice about consciousness and how the fear that I have of death is of not existing, not breathing, not having a perspective with which to view things anymore. And the idea that sleep is basic, it's unconscious by definition, right? Except Scott, who dreams over vividly all the time. But what I'm, but when, when you're, no, but, but yeah. you're sleeping without dreaming, your, your consciousness is not there. So if I, the way I've been dealing with death and thinking about it without like an afterlife per se is the idea that the molecules that make up my perspective and my consciousness, eventually they might come together again and then I'll just be awake. So death is just a long sleep and it doesn't hurt and it's not scary because if there's something afterwards it's your molecules coming together someplace else and this is just basically a platform for me to make everybody uncomfortable about talking about life after death if there is one well no but that's what we said we never really talked about that we kind of skirted that whole topic right. and I think yeah, it's, so I think, it's, you know, it's a valid it's thing supposed to... to be my platform to keep people uncomfortable <laughs> yeah <laughs> gosh why do you think I'm the host <laughs> no but um... Well, and, and that's what I really liked about about it, too, is that, like, you know, we don't get her, like, we don't know if she was religious before all this right. started. You know, we, we see her looking into other mythologies, and I think she kind of zeroes in on this one. Um, but it's kind of not but, the point, right? Like, her spirituality isn't the point, is that she's made peace with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sorry. But, but no, but yeah, but just that it's not something that, that she's sort of had her whole life, that she's just like, yeah, this is... 
which I feel like, uh, I mean, at least for me, it would have made it kind of, uh, kind of two-dimensional, you know, because that's sort of like, I feel like it is a, a common theme, at least in my life, you know, it's like, okay, it's nice for you that you believe this thing that you've been taught your whole life, but, but what if you don't? Like, right. what, you know, you can't, you can't make yourself believe in a religion and make yourself believe in this afterlife that other people are telling you about, so what do you, what do you have instead? What do you do? You know, um, and, you know, sort of, I guess, how, how far do you want to go, sort of, I guess, or for me, it's about creating my own mythology, which... Part of my mythology is that, like, you know, if the universe is actually infinite, then everything is possible, and everything anyone believes the afterlife to be is actually true, and is the way. So it's like it's it's all possible. There is a heaven. There is reincarnation. You know, there there are some people if they choose to believe that their consciousness just ceases to exist, then then fine, sure, you just get to become these atoms and molecules and gets reconstituted in other stuff, but. But, you know, you as a consciousness will never develop somewhere else, you know. And um, so that's sort of, you know, one of the things that I've kind of started thinking towards is that because every every sort of one view to me just seems very narrow, you know, and it's like we always talk about the universe being infinite. So how in an infinite universe is there only one possible truth for what happens to people after they die? And I think it's it's people's minds wanting whatever comforts them to be this absolute truth. But if there's any doubt, like. Well, what if reincarnation is true? No, it can't be true because if that's true, it means my thing isn't true, and I have to rethink the thing that's made me comfortable. And, um, but being mutually you, ex- exclusive, yeah, right, yeah. like that being and, a prerequisite for an afterlife idea, right? Like that yeah, it has to be this or nothing else, right? Yeah, and and I think you know maybe part of it too is also like, well, I want everyone to be with me, everyone that I know to be with me in the afterlife. So it has to be the same afterlife, and everybody has to believe the same thing as me, so that they can go to the same place. Otherwise, they're going to be forced to go to a different place, right. you know. And um, you know, and just yeah, so much of that seems so like short-sighted and so so limited and kind of circular to me. Um, but but yeah, like I think I think that's part of the trick is everyone has to find their own way to deal with death, you know, and and invent their own sort of mythology, you know, and that's sort of been you know my my take on it in my personal journey is like well kind of reinventing you know and 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 it's kind of funny because it comes back to the whole idea like oh well this is just to comfort people about things they're scared about and it's just like that very well may be but if i don't do that i I can't get out of bed in the morning you know so it's just like you know how much of you know are you willing to accept as a placebo effect of i'm going to tell myself a story and choose to believe it so i can get on with my day as opposed to you know, because people who, who, who believe that there is no afterlife, like, once you die, like, boom, like, poof, you're gone, you know, or I guess it, it kind of falls in, like, with, with atheism. Um, and I've had, I think Tyna was one of the people I had a conversation with this about, is that atheism is still a belief. Right. You know, just because they haven't been able to prove that a God exists doesn't mean that no God exists. Mm-hmm. So to, to believe that is, there is no God, it's not fact, it's still a belief. It's still something that people are sort of not not necessarily deciding you know because that was sort of what the thing is like there were some times it's like boy i just wish i could believe this this silly thing that made me happy and, and at peace but I, I can't so i don't think it's a choice necessarily but like it's something that somehow is built into the way everybody's made and that's why i think it's so ridiculous that some people will try to force other people to believe different things because that's not how that person is built you know just like someone wouldn't want you know someone else trying to program you to be like no this is what the afterlife is mm-hmm. but but i think that's that's what a lot of it is like everybody has their 
belief, you know. I mean, even scientists who say, well, we haven't been able to see this. It's just like, that's to me is just arrogance that assuming that you as a human have been able to develop a system that could allow you to detect anything anywhere in the universe if it exists. And if I can't find it, then it mustn't be out there. Mm-hmm. See, you know, but to that's me, why, well, good science uses the phrase absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. But there's a difference between we can't see it and we can see that it's not there. You know what I mean? Sort of a... Like, if I'm standing in a dark room and I can't see anything, mm-hmm. I don't know what's there. But if I'm standing in a room that's brightly lit and I can see everything and there's no TV here, then I can say, there is no TV. You know, the, the difference between the two things. Right, but how but can the they know they're being, seeing everything right, right, in but the that's entire what I mean universe about on that, every spectrum? See, that's what yeah. I mean about when it's done well, they're saying... Well, right now we don't see a TV, but this room's still pretty dark, as opposed to the people who just say, "No, there's no TV." Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's yeah. That's what I'm saying. saying. To to accept it as a truth versus like, (laughs) I I don't have enough information, so I'm going to draw my own conclusions. And it's and it's like that's fine, but again, same as people who are religious saying that everyone should believe what my religion says to sort of say, well, I don't believe that there's a God because there's no evidence, so that means there is no none, and everyone else who believes there is is stupid. You know, it's that mm-hmm. they're two sides of the same coin, kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so, like, that's I think that's the thing that clicked with me about this is she, she starts piecing together her own mythology about what is going to give her comfort, you know. And, and, you know, there's a little hint, that, you know, like that part where she has a seizure and she's like, oh, I, you know, I felt held and I felt, oh, where yeah. is she that I felt, you know. So there's a little hint that maybe, maybe there is something beyond just what she believes, you know, or maybe it's just, you know, her comforting herself. Or like he says, you know, yeah, I caught you. Maybe, you know, maybe she was, you know, she was a little delirious and didn't realize that he caught her and that was physically him holding her but it was enough to kind of trigger her to say like oh, okay i'm not i'm not afraid because i know i'm going to be taken care of and you know i read about all this stuff that sounds really cool and yeah i'd like to grow into a tree and have birds eat my fruit and then fly around like okay yeah i'm, I'm ready let's do this you know and and i don't think it's because she was right and she stumbled upon the one true answer but it's what it's what clicked for her you know and and you know that to me i think is is what the, the function of any sort of belief system, religion, spirituality, whatever, whatever you want to call it, is to be, is to, is, is to comfort yourself, you know, because, because, you, you know, you, you're not going to get that from any, anything else in this world, you know, like, you know, you're not going to, you know, I mean, yeah, science tries to figure stuff out, but yeah, science still hasn't cured death yet, you know, it's right. probably still the one thing that humans are most afraid of, you know. And it's, it's universally feared because it, it's inevitable. Yeah. And we don't know what's on the other side of it. Nobody's yeah. ever gone and come back. Like, yeah. We don't have any tourists returning. Right. You know? yeah. And I mean, it, it's... I like the idea of the building your own mythology. Because it, it doesn't... And it totally makes sense with knowing you and, and how you <laughs> right. process things and what you how you craft stories and like what you like in stories. It makes a whole lot of sense. And that's the thing, borrowing... like an Aztec legend and using the fa- the tree of life and fountain of youth and the idea right. of like and, it, it, and that line about the flaming sword yeah. from Genesis right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. and that's the thing like also the way we're presented with that narrative from the beginning is that we have the conquistador first and yeah. then we move into the orb in the sky mm-hmm. and then we come to the grounded reality of what's actually happening and then we finally we, we are 
given more information to justify which is which and what's happening like this is projected future is mm -hmm. it metaphor is it actually fact that's kind of less clear but the idea that the conquistador story is written and then how the three meld together is a constructed mythology which is right in keeping with what you were talking about mm -hmm. like it it's it's really good <laughs> i also like to the 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 ending like i want to say there is a degree of, of of vagueness to it yeah because we get the sense that okay he there's an alternate version of when she's taking the walk and he chooses to go with her she hands him that little thing she picks off the tree and at the end he buries it and you know i think he finally says goodbye to her right but then you gotta think it's like well wait a minute like she told him the myth about planting a tree over the grave that grew in and the person's essence went into the tree and he's in this globe with a tree like did did he you know did he find a cure for death and that's actually happened like he's actually kept himself alive and he that seed that he planted became this tree that was with her essence and then he captured right. it and said we're going to this fucking nebula like so you kind of don't know is that is that a symbol of him accepting her death or was that the the quote-unquote seed that was planted that grew into this tree that right, became that him you know, instead choosing a different kind of immortality yeah and yeah. then remaining in denial right and then taking her to shibalba to have her reborn in a different way yeah and then Only finally discover gets, there yeah. it's <laughs> that death is a, a doorway that that his death is the way for them to be together yeah and that yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I also like the tattoos, like rings in a tree. Yeah. Following yeah. the Kurgrek, like that was, I liked that too. too. I liked how they were different too. Like there was some that was like a line with little ticks on it, and then there right. was one that looked like a brick wall. Yeah. One like a ruler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good stuff. That's well, a good one. Yeah. yeah. Good movie. Thank you, Tim. Thank <laughs> You're you for welcoming this to us. I'm actually, you've, Pi was good, and I, but I, I, I liked it. But it didn't cling to me the way this did, in in the terms of personal film taste. I want to go like, back and watch it. Now, I, I think I might be. I might might add this to my collection at some point. You know, it's it's worth it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so, do we want to move into Joel's favorite segment? Yay! <laughs> Yay! He says here it comes. It is it is time for <laughs> another situational movie recommendations. All right, so I have another topic because I now I'm putting this on a. Uh, I have notes. My voice is so easy these. in that little intro. It's <laughs> the fun. one that you recorded. It's I'm so like, I love it so much. I'm glad well, it doesn't. <laughs> but I feel like that was also the one that we did before we decided. Yeah, we're gonna record it, and then we recorded it after. And I thought that's the one I was getting, but no, I got the like the first yeah. one that was the rough. Yeah, I was like, exactly. Right, you got the wheezy version, everybody. <laughs> I'm so glad that we have the wheezy version. <laughs> So, not, not the Weezer version. No. Wait, no, I'll cover it one day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but it'll no. be unchanged, like their cover of Africa. I so, so as a sidebar, there <laughs> I actually heard very recently original Africa for the first time in like three months yeah. on the radio, and then right after that got ads, switched channels, and then Weezer Africa came on that channel. And hearing them next to each other, they are a more different than I thought, and b I actually think I like Weezer's version more. Get off the podcast. Right. I don't know if I've ever heard Weezer's version of Africa. Yeah, I'll have to seek that out. There's yeah. very little different in my opinion, but that's fine. There's also better covers of Africa. There's See, that's like, possible too. Yeah. Because there's also the first cover I've heard. 
Right. So it's I, like one by like I think it's called yeah. Sex Ninja Party is the name of the band, which is a great name for a band, and their version <laughs> is superior in my opinion. Anyway, it's my name in college. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Tim, I don't know if you all heard that, but Tim said it. Oh well, no, actually I did the the Andy Dwyer thing where I said new band name I call it, but oh, it's already a band name. So it's call call it sounded like college to me. That's oh yeah. yeah, no, that, yeah, that's usually my line. Yeah, that's okay. my nickname. All right, so what's your situational situation here? Okay, Joel? so what is your favorite? Documentary to watch. Oh, documentary. We, we've talked about this a little bit. I've touched on this a bit. Maybe on podcast. I don't know. I don't know if you have. But on. my favorite. I, I mean, this is kind of goofy, but it's the buying the farm, betting the farm documentary that came with the Star Wars discs right, about the right, making right, of the original right. trilogy, and then a close second is the Indiana Jones equivalent. Right. Because they're just they're a good running time. Everything is self-contained, start to finish. They don't have any loose ends about what if he goes to jail or not, you know. And it touches on, it has problems, it has solutions, it has good and it has bad, and it's just fun to just see all of that happen. Gotcha. And so that's that's that. Um, that one's easy for you. Yeah, that was cake. I feel like I've answered it already. <laughs> um, um, so for me, um, there's I've got three in mind. Uh, the one that I like watching, it, it's it's. Yeah, it is essentially a documentary. It's called uh, "This Might Get Loud." That's I, I was yeah. gonna guess that I should have. And it's <laughs> it's Edge, who's the guitarist from U two, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, and Jack White of the White Stripes, Raconteurs, Dead Weather, and his solo career. And it's them in a room with their guitars and their amps, and just talking about their relationship with the guitars in throughout their careers and songwriting and being part of bands and their philosophies and just kind of it, it's it's a very strange documentary because it's not really linear or about anything it's just three guitar icons discussing the role of guitars in it's guitar porn it's it's basically <laughs> guitar porn and it's something that like every two or three months I have to watch again and if I start watching it at work I finish watching it at work and all I want to do is play guitar afterwards like it, it's it's there's something in that film that gets into my my bloodstream I, it, I like it a lot um, Muscle Shoals is also a good one um, it's about the the recording studio in uh, I think it's Louisiana and it just kind of about I've only seen it once but it was really resonant and really interesting about we talked about Sun Studios not really having a whole lot of like spirit to it, or like being in the place doesn't really have a resonance or anything. Yeah. But this one is about like specific people going to this recording studio. There's something in the water there, like it feels significant mm -hmm. trying to do an album there, and the records that came out of there are just iconic and sound like nothing else. So that I really like that, um, and I also like the Helvetica uh, documentary <laughs> about the typeface. And I thought it was the I thought it was the silliest idea going into watching it, but it's just it's so well done, and these people just get such like passion and like hard dicks about font. It, it it's just like really fun to see anybody can geek out about anything, and just the the, the analysis of this typeface that is basically the most widely used one ever. Like all street signs are printed in Helvetica all across the nation like even yeah. across the pond like it it's a huge it's a huge font and it, it's a really interesting story about how it was developed and how it compares and how people have opinions about it one way or the other it just 
it's really goofy, it's really nerdy, and I enjoy it immensely. <laughs> so two music ones and a typeface. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I can think of probably about three. I thought of one right, aw- right away, and then as I was thinking, so the first one I thought of was not not the film Pollock that I brought, but the, mm. the actual documentary, which I think yeah. I mentioned when we were talking about yeah. that, yeah. where it was someone who actually, like... and, and in the the movie Pollock with Ed Harris, like it's it's that movie that documentary being made right. when the guy's filming him and everything. So it was it was really cool to see that from both perspectives. But but to actually see the real Jackson Pollock on film and doing that stuff. But but then again, it takes something away from it when you know like how much he was struggling with that that he was being observed and it was affecting the way he was doing it and things like that. Um, but um, so that was really good. Um, and then also. Um, the uh, oh, there's one I saw a while ago on Netflix. It was about origami. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it was really cool. It it, it went from like all the, it wasn't just sort of traditional origami. It was like how it's evolved, mm-hmm. and how there are some mathematicians who use origami to like recreate mathematical sequences yeah. in three dimensions, it's and they make really these like complex things. Yeah. And then there was this one guy who was like a minimalist, and he was like, oh, you know, taking one sheet of paper and putting a fold. And he put one fold, and it just created this totally different shape. Like, I mean, it was still a piece of paper you knew, but but it was just like, oh my god! Like you you totally changed the form of that, and it was, um, it was neat to see that. Yeah, like you don't have to make it. Oh, it looks like a swan or a, or a crane or whatever. And um, and then they had these other guys who were doing these little like gnome creatures, and it like they were like one of them was like playing a violin, and it was all made of folded paper. <laughs> And, like, some of them, it goes also went through different degrees where, like, well, it's made of paper, but blah, 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 but, like, like no, it's made of paper, but there are also no cuts in it. And that's, like, another part of it is, like, you're not supposed to cut it because then you're just doing, like, cutting and pasting, whatever. But it's, like, all folds and this and that and different pieces. And it was just, like, amazing to see the different ways people, like, use mm-hmm. this. Um, and then uh, there was a Lego documentary I saw. <laughs> it wasn't part of the, yeah. the toys that made us. It was like before that, yeah. where it was like about the whole history of Lego and everything. So it was like two hours, an hour or two hours just on Lego and where that came from. And, and that was really neat to kind of see the evolution it went through. You know, I, I feel like with a lot of things, like even stuff that I think I know a lot about, it's only the way that thing has sort of served me. You know, it's like, yeah, I know a lot about Legos because of Star Wars Legos. And it's just like, well, but there was this also this whole history. I was like, oh, like. I don't know if I would have gotten into it if it was back when it was just like fire trucks and buildings. You know, right. it was only when they started really making stuff that hit my other interests. So it's almost mm-hmm. like I don't know that I like Lego. I just like stuff that has to do with Star Wars and comic books. And when Lego <laughs> puts those sets out, that's what I'm interested in. You know, mm-hmm. um, but so but it was really interesting in how that you know the little tube on the inside was what made all the difference because then it could actually clamp on as opposed to just like it used to be an open block so the pieces could kind of slide right. around and. So that kind of, like, little engineering things like that was just like, oh, man, like, yeah. the person who thought, hey, what if we put this in here so it'll grab on it? Like, boom, it just, like, revolutionized the way the whole thing was done. Right. Um, so that was really interesting. You reminded me of, I want to toss an honorable mention at Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Yes, oh, my uh, God, so I've good. Yeah, it's a Netflix. It's great. I, I don't like sushi. I've talked about this with lots of my friends. I've tried it many times throughout my life. Every so often I come back to it again just to see. I still don't like it. All right, most recently was about 10 months ago now not not even i uh, six months uh sorry eight months it was eight months ago was the last time i tried sushi i still didn't like it mm-hmm. tried a few different pieces so but 
watching Jiro Dreams of Sushi makes me hungry for sushi because it's that good. <laughs> it's such a great documentary. Is that oh. the one? Don't they do a parody of it on yes. documentary? One now? likes rice and chicken. Oh right. <laughs> I actually was gonna. I'm gonna throw in one of them from that. The, the uh, Blue Jean Committee episode of Documentary Now is one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Because it. Oh my God! I also like the history of the Eagles. That that is a <laughs> five-hour-long monstrosity oh, of God. like the most testosterone for soft rockers of all time. It's so dramatic and ridiculous. And I love watching that and then the Blue Jean Committee and then that again. It makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, that Sweet. was a good one, Joel. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And The Fountain was a great film. Outstanding. Thank you, Thank um, you both. And I'm so glad I went in without any... Without any knowledge, yeah. yeah just yeah. like I needed it to just be a thing without any context. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad I knew enough not to spoil stuff. I mean, it was good. You know, I wanted to set it up like in terms of the context of his other stuff right. but it really didn't give anything away about yeah. the film itself you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that was great yes this was a great episode it was really tightly tightly woven you both brought as always really you both brought fantastic things to the table <laughs> film and situational recommendations and uh oh, that's that's wonderful so uh so that concludes this cycle we're gonna move on to a new cycle episode 19 joel you will be picking the film what will you be bringing us? We are going to watch um, Fritz Lang's 1927 Metropolis, mm. which is a silent film that's the height of German expressionism in film, and it's mm. about a... That's a pretty bold claim, but... It is uh, accurate. Yeah, there may be a handful of contenders I can think of, and Metropolis is up there, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of the, fir- it's the first dystopia on film yeah. at least feature length wise and it, it's a film with sci-fi dystopia yeah, yeah absolutely and it's, it's an interesting film with an interesting um, editing history which we'll get into and it's, it's spectacular it gave me nightmares and I'm very excited to watch it again with you guys yeah. <laughs> um, I'm excited to see I'm it. excited to have nightmares I've seen too. films of the era and one other Fritz Long film M but I have never seen Metropolis so I'm excited I'm so excited mm-hmm. We're looking forward to that very much. I certainly hope you are, listeners. I, we're really going to dive back now. This is one of the oldest films. Yeah. I mean, it is the Just oldest period. in the podcast, yeah. for sure. But One by, of the oldest films, period. By a pretty big margin, because I have a number on our list that are from 40s or 50s or whatever, but we just we haven't watched them yet. This is going to be quite a jump. Uh, I'm glad about that. This is going to be great. We hope you're excited, listeners, and we hope you'll be back with us next month. Until then, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hey listeners, we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes if you'd like to check us out there. We'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at scott underscore w underscore murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at joelt18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard, and on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.